0: Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Called the town too tough to die, Tombstone, Arizona was made infamous for hosting the now legendary gunfight at the OK Corral. In October of 1881, Local law enforcement officers engaged a party of suspected criminals in a shootout. Despite lasting only 30 seconds, the firefight has become a watershed moment in Western history. Although many have glamorized the moment, the days leading up to the event have shrouded the story in mystery. While some view the gunfight as the ultimate conquest of law and order over disorder and chaos, others believe it may have been nothing more than a premeditated assassination against unarmed victims. With the smoke now cleared, Controversy is the only certainty. On this episode, we discuss the gunfight at the OK Corral. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Root and Tootin' edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the greatest showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website for news, updates, and events, BradyKreitzer.com, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we're discussing one of, if not the most famous events in the history of the American West: the shootout at the OK Corral. An event that has lived in infamy and legend for nearly 150 years. This is not a traditional battle not the way we think. But again, with Season 5 being named Battlegrounds, we can interpret that pretty loosely. It's an event that has a lot of uh, meaningful interpretation for the American West and I think one that has some teachable moments for today's world. Moving forward, a few announcements. Remember, March 8th I'll be appearing at the Guilford Courthouse National Battlefield Park outside of Greensboro, North Carolina, if you're on the East Coast. I hope you can join us. Mentioned wartime. But this is a gunfight today, the topic we're dealing with, that has many tentacles that explore many different strands of thought throughout the history of the United States. It has to do with expansion. It has to do with emerging industry. It has to do with the role of law enforcement. It even has to do with, believe it or not, the Civil War. And we can talk about all of these things when we talk about the seemingly isolated 30-second gunfight that occurred in Tombstone, Arizona in 1881. But before we can get to the who and the what, let's talk about the where. Let's talk a little bit about the American West. Whenever I think of the American West, at least before I began my training to be a historian, I had a very clear image in mind, almost an archetype socially that we can all think about. I saw cactuses, tumbleweeds. I saw small towns and outposts in the middle of the desert. And I saw cowboys. Sometimes I thought of Indians, but I always thought of one thing. And it was the gun. The gun is there. The gun is everything. The gun is John Wayne. I mean, that's the American West that I thought about. And it's what initially enticed me to begin studying this time period, roughly the last 25 years of the 19th century. And upon arriving there, I found out I had a lot to learn. Uh, There was the imminent sound of glass shattering whenever I began studying the American West. See, a lot of people think history is all names, dates, and places. And I always say that is excellent uh, if you are playing Trivial Pursuit with your uncle at Thanksgiving, uh, knowing the dates and the people and the generals and all of that, and that's all important. But a lot of what historians really do, the kind of things we argue amongst ourselves about, is discussing things that don't necessarily have that yes or no answer, and things that, quite frankly, can never be answered. We talk about things like historical memory, and that's a far-out idea if you've never experienced it. Historical memory, amongst many things, kind of works like this. If I said you, think about the Old West, everybody would almost immediately de- develop in their minds an image of the Wild West. But is that accurate? And is that fair? Well, we think of a lot of the images we see, and mostly we see them in our mind's eye in black and white. And that's because Hollywood in the 1940s and 50s and 60s has essentially created the experience of the West for us. When we think of the American West, we don't think of the West as it really was. We think of it as spaghetti Western Hollywood films would have us believe it was. And that's true almost across the board, unless you go way out West. Maybe you're listening there and you have a different view of things. I find people who grew up in the West typically do. But for us East Coasters, uh, it's not that way. Again, it's all John Wayne. By the way, Uh, John Wayne's actual name was Marion Morrison, and believe it or not, I had French class with his great-niece. Ooh la la. But at any rate, that's the West we know about in our minds, but what is the West that we should really expect? If we got in, say, a time machine, maybe a DeLorean, and we went back to the American West, what would we see? Well, this podcast today is all about maybe dispelling some myths, certainly, but also, let's not make any mistake, validating the stereotypes and ideas that maybe Hollywood has given us, because they are there. So we'll need to talk about that. But first things first, the American West, after the Civil War, is a place of opportunity. Great opportunity. Fortunes can be made there, but make no mistake, fortunes could also be lost so could lives. Here's the thing. When you think about the West, I want you not to think about The Revenant, if you've seen that film. Don't think about Conestoga wagons. Don't think about Oregon trails. Don't think about fording the river and the oxen drowning or little Sally getting smallpox. That's really sort of a manifest destiny West. That's kind of a pre-Civil War moving West. I want you to think about a more modern place. The one event that really opens up the American West as we know it, places like the New Mexico Territory, places like California, and so on, is the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad just after the American Civil War. And I want you to think about what that represents. Before, if you were going to move west, say in the 1830s or 40s, odds are you would be poor Because if you were wealthy, you wouldn't have a lot of reason to take on that risk. And you'd probably need to sell everything you own just to buy a wagon, uh, some oxen and horse, uh, and the necessary supplies to keep you alive. But once you actually got into the West, that's no cakewalk. You had to deal with radical changes in weather. You had to deal with very hostile Indian nations whose territory you'd be crossing into. You had to deal with bear attacks. I always joke about the game The Oregon Trail, which we all have so much experience with, but that's a pretty accurate representation of at least moving west. But you had to be a rough person to do it. You had to be a pioneer to do it. By the end of the Civil War, those days are long gone. By the end of the Civil War, with the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, again, a railway system that stretches from the east coast to the west coast, suddenly anybody can move west. You could get on a train in New York City, be wearing a fancy suit. You could drink a fine brandy and smoke a fine cigar and never have to break a sweat. Sit on a train, listen to music, whatever. Uh, And you'd eventually get there. What I'm saying is, anybody can move west now. Not just these, these roughnecks, but literally anybody who could sit on a train. And quite a comfortable train could move west. So what that means is, The West is now filled with new types of people. Not just the typical frontier types, but uh, people I would consider to be uh, very much of the Victorian era. They wore fancy dresses and tailored clothing. They ate fine foods. Let's make no mistake, the West is still a rough place. uh, Physically, geographically, but culturally, it's not as far behind as Hollywood might make us believe. This will take us to Tombstone. That's the setting of today's episode. Tombstone, Arizona, if you visit it today, if you have, I'd recommend it. It's a drive from almost anywhere. Uh, Has a very great tagline when you enter the town. The tagline says, Welcome to Tombstone, the town too tough to die. And man, you can't write a better line than that. The town too tough to die because that feeds into all of the great sort of imagery that Hollywood films have given us about the American West, Mad Dog Tannen and gunfights and all those things. Uh, But again, it's not exactly accurate, slightly accurate, but mostly misleading. Again, the events we'll talk about today will be one of the most enduring images that really gave birth to those viewpoints. But Tombstone was not a sleepy little town and it's not to say there weren't any. I'd like to right now give you a crash course into the history of cities and towns in the American West. Keep in mind, if you wanted to study this professionally, you absolutely positively can. We're only skimming over the details, but as always, I'll do my best to make it simple and easy. Towns popped up in the American West really for one of three reasons. One was the presence of a military base. Two was the presence of a railroad. And three was the presence of gold and silver. There is absolutely, positively, no reason to live in the depths of the Mojave Desert. It's hot, it's dry, it's nasty. I am from the East Coast. I look out my window, I see grass and trees all year. Sometimes I see several feet of snow, but that's a different story. But I love going out west. And I love going out west because to me it's still so different. And the imagery and the archetypes we've already discussed are so uh, powerful and evocative. I can still fall in love with a desert landscape. I still uh, am, am uh, drawn by it. It hasn't lost its novelty. If you grew up in the west then you're probably pretty used to it, and you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But imagine if you've never seen it before. I went on a horseback ride through the Nevada desert, and I felt like Matt Damon in The Martian. There was very little life. There were no people. It was striking to me. Uh, But the West, on the whole, is not a place that's easy to live. Uh, And again, I very quickly scurried back to my hotel after a a short ride in the 110-degree heat there's nothing easy about living there. It's not a place where Americans of the 19th century want to be if they had their druthers. So something has to draw you out west. And what that was, was precious metal. You see, the west have some of the most beautiful mountains and scenery we can imagine here in North America. And in those mountains, you will find deposits of gold and silver. Silver more prevalent Gold, obviously, more valuable, but both pretty strikingly valuable. And that is what draws people out of their comfort zones in the big major cities of the East Coast. The idea of finding that gold and striking it rich. But the reality was, very few people, very few people, actually did get rich. And this is kind of like uh, if a casino was built in your hometown, every weekend people pour into a casino looking intending with every fiber of their being to strike it rich but the vast majority of them will not do nothing but lose money rather than win money and that's kind of like searching for precious metal in the west everybody going into it knows they have a very big chance of failure but the problem is they also know that somebody is going to find some gold somewhere so why not them it's why we buy powerball tickets And if you don't live in America and you don't know what the Powerball is, uh, consider yourself lucky. Because somebody's got to win, but almost nobody does. So if you go out west, odds are you're not going to make much money. You'll probably go broke and maybe even die. But what if you were a forward thinker? What if you were someone who saw opportunity where others only saw despair? You could go out west and be guaranteed to get rich, gold or not. And that's the story of what we call the boom town. This is how most western cities in the 19th century, especially after the Civil War, are formed. People go out to the middle of the desert when they hear that might be gold or silver present. And suddenly suddenly over the next few weeks, they're joined by hundreds more and hundreds more. And before long, you have all of these city slickers in the middle of the 100 degree heat. They need a place to live. So people follow them and they build towns. These are not towns made of stone buildings. These are towns made of wooden buildings. And you guys know the kind of old westy towns I'm talking about. They're made in a matter of days, literally. And they're not designed to be permanent. Uh, The people in the village, specifically uh, the miners. You don't see really buildings made out of really sturdy permanent materials in the American West. Because again, if there is no gold or silver, or if it runs out, there is no godly reason on earth to live there. So they're sort of built to be temporary and abandoned. And when they are built and say no gold or silver is found, a lot of the times people just leave because, again, why in the heck would you stay? Well, the emergence of that town we call a boom town. But when they abandon it, we call that a ghost town. So you might have heard of that all over the American Southwest. With no gold and silver, there's no reason to stay. But what if there was gold and silver? There's many uh, stories of failure, but what if there was a success story? What would that look like? That, ladies and gentlemen, is Tombstone. Tombstone is located in southern Arizona, almost near the Mexican border. A uh, seam of silver was found in the region, and people, like all boom towns, flocked to Tombstone. And Tombstone built up and developed and became a community. Now, usually how this works is the really, really smart people out west are not in the mines looking for gold and silver. They're building the uh, brothels and saloons and other places that are kind of unsavory in the town. Because here's the deal. If you own a saloon, you're guaranteed to get rich. If somebody finds gold, they're going to come to you, and they're going to buy alcohol, and they're going to gamble, and they're going to seek out female companionship. Because let's face it, there aren't many women out west looking for gold. The real money is servicing those miners. If they find gold, they're going to spend money in your saloon. If they don't find gold, they're going to be upset. And guess what? They're going to want to drink alcohol and gamble and uh, find the companionship of a woman. See how it works? Again, the casino goer doesn't necessarily get rich. The only person guaranteed to win money is the casino owner. And that's the beauty of the American West. Tombstone is a really good example of a town that made it. And again, as much as we love this moniker of the town too tough to die, the reality was it wasn't really a rough and tumble place at all. Starting in about 1877, you're going to start to see people come there and stay there because the silver is so plentiful. From 1877 to 1890, here's just an example. Anywhere from 40 to $85 million worth of silver were produced just outside of that town. That's a crazy amount of money, and that's in the late 19th century. So imagine what that would equate to today. Make no mistake, Tombstone was a silver town. And it was there to stay. Now again, why is Tombstone not the town too tough to die? Well, uh, a couple reasons. Uh, One of them was, when the silver proved itself to be permanent... Many uh, very, I guess, refined types, Yankee northern types, started to pour into the town. They brought with them their Victorian fashions and their Victorian values. And they brought with them all of the creature comforts they would have in New York City or Boston or Philadelphia uh, or Charleston, anywhere like that. Here's a really good example. When you're in Tombstone, you're in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the godforsaken desert. The only way in and out is not a train, but a stagecoach. But every morning in Tombstone, every morning, there was fresh seafood available of all types. Where did it come from? Well, it was fished out of Baja, California, right at about nightfall. It was put on a train, then on a coach, and would arrive in Tombstone by morning. Fresh seafood Every day. They had ice cream parlors. They had barber shops. Tombstone had two newspapers. And they were both doing pretty well. So, again, the last thing we want to do is make this town out to be some um, uh, wretched hive of scum and villainy, if you know what I'm saying. Because it wasn't. It was a modern 19th century town. But we. Now, understanding the place, need to understand the why, the politics of Tombstone, because that's where the shootout at the OK Corral comes from. Tombstone, in a lot of ways, was indicative of many western cities and towns, but it was also indicative of many eastern cities and towns, in that it was seeking to find a place for itself, and a role for for itself, in the post-Civil War world. I want you to think about the generation that fought the Civil War. Many of them left home. Many of them left their lives behind. Many of them did not return. But those that did found themselves to be really only good at one thing. Maybe they fought in their teens and early 20s, but it was soldiering. It was operating behind a gun. It was being on their own or following orders. And although North and South were separate for four years... When they rejoined, we talked about Reconstruction in other episodes, they both wanted to lay a claim to the American West, and it really wasn't anybody's to claim. I mean, the Confederates attempted to control New Mexico early on uh, in the American Civil War, but it was wrestled away by the Federal Army. But the West was ours, not us or theirs, and that was important. And Tombstone was a microcosm of that. Tombstone really had two different types of people living in that community. There were the folks that were there before the Silver and the folks that were there after. The people there before the Silver had a very common profile. Most of them lived off the land. They were ranchers. They were herders. They were fly-by-nights looking for day work. Some of them were just straight-up criminals, outlaws. And many of them kind of lived in that gray area in the middle between legitimacy and criminality. They were mostly Southerners before the American Civil War and before they moved west. They were very conservative, and like any Southern conservative in the time in and around the Civil War, they were Democrats. As the silver produced... And the city began to grow, and again, these Yankee, refined, uh, wealthy types started moving into the town. Most of them came from northern cities. Philadelphia, Boston, New York, and almost all of them were Republicans. Northern liberals, for all intents and purposes. If they did serve in the Civil War, they fought uh, for the United States of America, not for the Confederacy. So already, you see there's a divide there. Uh, the uh, conservative Southern Democrats, ranchers and herders living on the outskirts of the Arizona territory in and around Tombstone, but not in the city itself. And these uh, Northern liberals living in the town. I mean, we know what this divide looks like. Okay. Uh, And we know why there's some animosity there because quite frankly, we're still living in a world where you have a split amongst Americans that liberal-conservative divide will always be there. Uh, And it always has been. It's been a driving force, at least for the last 150 years in American history, I think, politically. But at any rate, Tombstone is America in a microcosm. Remember I mentioned to you, Tombstone had two newspapers in 1881. There was the pro-business, Republican-liberal-leaning Tombstone epitaph. And then there was the more pro rancher conservative-leaning tombstone at Nugget, as it was called. And they would report the same stories, of course, from different perspectives, one from a leftist perspective and one from a right-leaning perspective. That's tombstone uh, as we knew it in the 1880s, and that is the world in which the gunfight at the O.K. Corral will take place. So let's get to the who. A lot of these ruffians, these roughnecks, these conservative ranchers, so to speak, and some of them criminals living around Tombstone were viewed as somebody and some people uh, that the people in the town didn't particularly like, but not even like, they didn't trust, and they didn't feel safe around them. Again, some of them were criminals, but when we talk about the people that skirt the line between legitimacy and criminality, those people were very specifically called at the time Cowboys. Cowboy is not a new word, we still have it, but cowboy in the Arizona Territory in the 1880s had a very specific connotation. It was like what we think of as a gangster in Chicago in the 1930s. You knew what it meant, and you weren't comfortable with it. Now, many of them were legitimate ranchers, but they often shared sentiments with these outlaw types. So on one side, for this story, you're going to have the cowboys. On the other side, you have the city dwellers, you have the liberals, so to speak, the republicans. Uh, They tended to be much more in favor of law and order and very fearful of these cowboys. They didn't like when the cowboys came into town. Again, stage travel was the only way in and out of town safely. And stagecoaches would be robbed and people on them would be killed. And most of the time, it was not by hostile Indians. In fact, almost never by the year 1880, but always by these nefarious cowboys. So law and order and an unabiding, I would say, reliance in law and order was a key hallmark of living in Tombstone itself for these very wealthy citizens. That sort of idea is going to, again, set the table for the conflict to come. As uh, fortunes are made, more people are moving west, people begin to explore the idea of moving to Tombstone. One of them was a man named Wyatt Earp. He had a brother, Virgil, and a brother, Morgan. He also had a very good friend that is very famously known as Doc Holliday. When Wyatt Earp first came to Tombstone, he had no interest in doing what he called lying. That's not even a word. That's what he called it. He didn't want to be a a marshal or a sheriff uh, or anything like that because he wanted to get rich. So he tried to get rich. He started a stagecoach company, but the competition was fierce. And I mean fierce. They poisoned his horses. That didn't last long. He tried to get into the mining business, not actually mining, but supporting miners, moving water, things like that. Nothing worked. By the way, mining shifts in in Tombstone uh, operated in 10-hour shifts all day long. So the city really never slept. Forget being too tough to die. It was even too busy to sleep. So why Earp will try and grain himself in this town. The only job he can get, again, stagecoach Travel Binky, is being a shotgun man, a guard for some of these very valuable stagecoaches, carrying lots of money. One of the premier financial institutions of Tombstone, you might have heard of it in 1881, was called Wells Fargo. So there you go. These things are still around. Wells Fargo is still a pretty big deal. Well, one of Wyatt Earp's jobs was to sit on a carriage and guard a big box of money going from one town to the other. And he knew, by the way, that everybody in the town hated him for this because they knew as long as that cash was on that wagon, then the cowboys, the scoundrels, wouldn't be far away. It was a very lonely job. Wyatt Earp hated it. So again, he was looking to get rich. He wasn't finding a way to do it. But then he realized, this is a territory that's growing. And this is a territory that's going to need law and order. Now, he hated the idea of being a lawman again, but there were many opportunities to do it. One of them was to be the sheriff of the town. See, here's the thing about being sheriff. If you were sheriff of Tombstone, you collected all the taxes. Who wants that job? Well, I'll tell you who. Somebody who gets 10% of all taxes collected in his own pocket, wants that job, and that was the official, uh we don't want to say salary, but fringe benefit of being the sheriff of Tombstone. Wyatt Earp was absolutely on board with that. It would equate to about $40,000 in 1881, which today would be about a million dollars a year. So if there is ever a get-rich scheme, yeah, there you go right? Uh, Join the bureaucracy of the government, I suppose. Uh, But that's where Wyatt saw himself. But the problem was he couldn't get this uh, election to sheriff without something to hang his hat on. He needed something. And he looked around, and he heard that there was a major robbery of a stagecoach not long before this. He wasn't sure by who, but he believed if he could catch that person, that would be the feather in his cap, to gain enough votes to become sheriff of Tombstone. Now, that sounds easy enough, as much as police work could be, but there were some serious issues with it. And one of them was this. The current sheriff at the time, a man named Johnny Bean, was wildly popular, always one of the nicest guys you meet, always had a cigar in his pocket, ready to give you, you know, a, a gladhander, we could say. But he was deeply entrenched with the uh, more conservative elements around the city, with these uh, rancher types, or as we said, even these criminal cowboys. Remember, that wasn't unusual. These people had their own newspaper in town, The Nugget. So it wasn't like they were all criminals. I don't want you to think they're like the mafia, but they're just the place where some of these bad apples tend to be harbored and look the other way. I mean, here's an example. Much of what they do, especially the criminal element, is to cross over into Mexico, find large herds of cattle, steal them, and bring them back to Arizona territory, American soil. And local authorities tended to look the other way, including the sheriff, Johnny Bean, the man that, by the way, Wyatt Earp would need to challenge. Because, you know, what did he care about Mexico? If anything, it helped the economy of Arizona. Well, Wyatt Earp went to one of the people well-known sort of a scoundrel type, in Tombstone, a man named Ike Clanton, and said to Clanton, listen, I know you buy a lot of these illegal cattle, stolen from Mexico, I know you probably know who robbed that stagecoach. Wells Fargo, after the stagecoach was robbed and the men on board the wagon killed, offered $3,600 reward, dead or alive, for the people that did it. Wyatt Earp said to Ike Clanton, give me the names of the criminals, I know you know. And not only will I not prosecute you with harboring any information, but I'll give you every cent of the Wells Fargo $3,600 reward for the men. Clanton himself, again, walking a line, skirting the legal and illegal worlds, seemed to be willing to help, but was deathly afraid that word would get out amongst these cowboys that he was a rat and began to fear for his life. As you can imagine, elections come, Wyatt Earp does not win, Johnny Bean is still sheriff of Tombstone, and this begins a pretty big split, because Bean was more a representative of the county of Cochise, that's where Tombstone's located, and a friend to the cowboys and the ranchers. Many Republicans and well-to-do folks in the city began to fear who represents them. Wyatt Earp's brother, Virgil, would quickly solve that problem when he became a law officer in Tombstone a bit later. He would quickly deputize his brother Wyatt and Morgan, as well as Doc Holliday to help him. And they became like a strange Republican Justice League, if you would, within the city. So you had a divide even in law enforcement now. Forget having two different newspapers. You now had the sheriff of the county being firmly on the side of the uh, cowboys. You have uh, Wyatt Earp and the gang being on the side of the townspeople. And this divide will permeate. And again, you could trace it back to the Civil War if you wanted. Now, you're going to see this begin to happen more and more and more. One of the things that occurs, which is a very important part of the story, and may be a surprise to some of you, is the passage of a law called Ordinance 9. You see, the townsfolk were so afraid of these cowboys, these outsiders, that they actually had a law passed that said, you could not have a gun, a knife, or a dagger in town. I mean, imagine that. We have this image of the Wild West. If you would have went back in time to watch the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. And we'll get there. The first thing you would have seen is a sign that says, gun-free zone. I mean, the history of our country is a strange and winding one, and it's still going on. But this sort of sets the stage for the gunfight itself. Because here's how it goes down. Mike Clanton was asked if he would be willing to roll over on some of his cowboy friends. He says no. He begins to drink and drink in the city of Tombstone. He begins to spill his guts, saying he was a, he was approached. Uh, the, the Earps are out to get him. He didn't say anything. As the night goes on, he begins to drink some more and threaten to kill one of the Earp brothers. That's a bad move in a place like Tombstone, uh, on edge as it is already, especially with a guy like Wyatt Earp. The next morning comes by, it appears that Clanton's going to shoot Wyatt Earp. He's arrested, he's taken to the local uh, justice, and he's charged. And his charge is not attempted murder, but having a gun in town. So this kind of sets the Bad Blood in motion between uh, the Earp brothers, again this de facto justice organization in the town representing the people where the county won't, and these outsiders, these cowboys. And it all comes to head on the morning of October 26th, 1881. You see, there's a group of these cowboys in town. They're not wanted, not by the people. Some of them are criminals. Some of them may be in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's a pair of brothers, one we mentioned, Ike Clanton and his brother Billy, definitely on the criminal side. There's also a guy named Billy Claiborne, also uh, not the kind of guy you want your daughter bringing home on a date. But then there's a pair of brothers, Tom and Frank McClary. The McClary's seemingly were upstanding citizens, at least. They didn't have a reputation as troublemakers. They were nowhere near the place in Tombstone called the O.K. Corral, In fact, they're about six blocks down, near a photography studio owned by one C.S. Fly. That's the site of the shootout. And the rest of the story is sort of up in the air. It's sort of up for grabs. As the Cowboys would say it, those five men were just in town minding their own business. They would have no guns on them. As the Vigilance Committee, the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday would say it, they approached them about potentially having guns on them, and a skirmish ensued. It was a 30-second firefight. But here's basically the most common interpretation of it. The McClaury brothers, the Clanton brothers, and Billy Claiborne were in an alleyway near C.S. Fly's photography studio. Wyatt Earp, Virgil Earp, Morgan Earp, and Doc Holliday approached them. There was a shouting match. They were only about a foot apart, maybe at the most. The Earp said, do you have guns on you? Put your hands up. No guns in town. Now, if you ask the Cowboys, they say they had no guns. They said they put their hands up. And the Vigilance Committee, the Justice League, if you would, Earp and his guys, opened fire. Again, they were allowed to have guns. They were enforcers of the law. Earp's testimony says that when he asked them to put their hands up, some of them drew. Ike Clanton runs away. Billy Claiborne gets away. But three of these cowboys would be dead. Billy Clanton and Known Tough would be killed. And Tom and Frank McClary would be shot dead as well. Again, they were the ones that, by all accounts, had no records. I mean, they were seemingly in the wrong place at the wrong time. Virgil and Morgan Earp would be wounded. Chaos would ensue. Almost immediately, there was a protest within the city of Tombstone from the Democratic-leaning, right-leaning, cowboy-leaning uh, facets, saying that three men, unarmed, were just murdered in the streets by overzealous police officers with an axe to grind. The Nugget, the newspaper, the conservative newspaper, wrote over and over uh, opinion pieces about how these men, the Erps and Doc Holliday, need to be uh, charged uh, and hung for murder. The three dead bodies I've mentioned, Billy Clanton and the McLaurie brothers, were put on display in Tombstone with a big sign underneath them that said murdered. I mean, this was immediate. So the idea that people never protested or didn't complain, or that's a new thing, isn't exactly new. Again, this story has relevance today. As you could imagine, on the other side, the Republican side, the liberal side, the law and order side, the side represented by the Tombstone Epitaph. Of course, the Earps were heroes. And that's the story that tended to get out nationally because of a relationship between the Associated Press, the new Associated Press, and the newspaper, the Tombstone Epitaph. But make no mistake, this wasn't a firing, a shooting, and it was done with. This went to trial. Ike Clanton did his best to give a story that said that Wyatt Earp and his brothers and Doc Holliday murdered his friends. But his testimony quickly went off the rails whenever he started to say that Wyatt Earp actually was a known stagecoach robber, who was only posing as a officer of the law, it clearly was fabricated. The Earp brothers, Doc Holliday, they get off scot-free. But this begins an interesting dialogue. Who was right and who was wrong? And is that even something you can judge? Did those men have weapons? Or was this a a hit squad by Wyatt Earp and his partners? In some cases, the debate still goes on. But no matter what, at the end, Wyatt Earp's name goes down in history. He's a legend for what he did. So the shootout at the O.K. Corral might not even have been a shootout at all. And we know for a fact it was not at the O.K. Corral, it was down the street. I guess the shootout at the O.K. Corral sounds more exciting than the shootout at C.S. Fly's photography studio. But it's a really compelling story. It shows us how law and order works in the West. It shows us the expectations of law and order in the West. It shows us how politics plays out on the ground in the West. It shows us the legacy of the Civil War in the West. Yeah, it's not a traditional battle, but it's a battleground, certainly. I mean, people visit that site. Tombstone, Arizona, the town too tough to die for that reason. But again, remember, Tombstone is not like a roughneck town. It's not like a Wild West town. I mean, this happened in a a highly populated, uh, fairly civilized area. Now, this story goes on uh, well beyond what happens at C.S. Flies, or as we say, the OK Corral down the street. It goes beyond the gunfight in the months and years to come. Virgil Earp would be shot at and grievously wounded. He'd survive, but hurt very badly uh, by some clearly angry cowboys from the outskirts of Tombstone. Later on, Morgan Earp would be shot and killed. Wyatt Earp would go on a rampage, completely outside of the realm of the law, going to kill cowboys all over. It was messy and it was ugly. And again, there's no angels in this story. Forget good guys and bad guys. I mean, you're talking about a lot of dangerous people. But I think it's so important that we can understand these events and maybe learn a little bit about ourselves today. Remember, the American story is a drama that's still going on, hopefully goes on for a long time. But events like this grab the American consciousness, and they have a ripple effect. And those ripples can still be felt all around us. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.